Kevin. Well, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. So glad that you are uh, joining us this morning. And as the kids go out, we're reminded again that next Sunday morning at here at 9 o'clock, if you need some energy boost in your Christmas season, it's going to be here next, next Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Looking forward to all that they're bringing. Thank you to Suzanne and Carla for helping to organize that. So that will be fun. Well, welcome back to uh, part three of four in our Christmas Advent series, which I uh, so uh, creatively entitled Christmas uh, this year. Isn't that great? Yeah, I've struggled for a long time about the best way to name this thing, but landed on that. But when hope is born, I do believe everything changes, and that's our subtitle and our focus with this. And as we get into this message this morning, I don't know if you thought about it in this way before about this topic, but uh, when I think about the idea of love, I realize how unique a word it is and how unique an expression it is and how unique the feelings are that are around that concept of love. In fact, we use the word for so many things that sometimes when a word is used for so many things, we lose the meaning of it altogether. Like I would use the word love for a variety of things even at Christmas season. Uh, I would say that I love coated crackers. Okay? Some of you know what those are and some may not, but Ritz crackers with a little bit of peanut butter in between, sometimes marshmallow if you kind of do the deluxe version, and then you dip it in chocolate and you eat it. I don't know why that is only a Christmas thing, by the way. I would argue that that can be all year round. I'm not sure why that is only a Christmas. So I'd say I'd love that. But I'd also use that word love to describe my relationship with my wife, Jen. Say, I, I love Jen. And I would tell you, and you would know, that I hope you know, that the, the weight of those words in those two different sentences are different, right? I love Jen differently, very differently, than I love coated crackers. It is an ironic word. It's a strange word to think about because I love both to exercise and get a hard workout in on the bike. I love what that does for my mind and my body and the stimulating um, reality of that. But I also love to relax. I love a sunshiny day and go outside and just chill for a little bit. It's strange that I love both ends of that spectrum. I love a good night's sleep, but I also love to be very active. It's funny, isn't it? Some of you have pets. Uh, you love your cat, I think. Maybe. But I think you love your family in a different way, right? It's the same thing. So this love word is very interesting. Some of you love making money, but you would also admit that you actually love making a difference even more than making money. And so love is a very interesting word used in all different kinds of contexts for all different kinds of things. And in that world that we live in, here's what I want to say, that when we, don't, uh, when we aren't thoughtful about how that word love is used, sometimes we miss the very um, anchor point of what love should be anchored to. Uh, to put it another way, we all mean something when we use that word love. We all mean something when we use it in our marriage relationships, in our business relationships, in our faith relationships, with our classmates and friends. We all mean something. And the question is, around Christmas time especially, when you think of the word love and the way that you express that love, what is that anchored to for you? What is the most influential dynamic that shapes how you think about the way you love someone. Because each of us has different backgrounds that have impacted our ability to love or be loved. And this morning at Christmas time, in this series in Christmas, we do know that around Christmas time, God is love, and he sent his son, the Christians believe, God sent his son Jesus in flesh, we call that the incarnation, as an act of love to show us love. For Christians, God's love to us becomes that anchor point to help us think about how do we then love others, and what does that mean then to love in light of how God has loved us? It's a great and powerful principle, but this morning, I want to go a little further than the incarnation with you because I think it goes further than that. In fact, the incarnation, when Jesus became human, is an incredible point of how God has loved us, but I don't think it's the best and fullest expression 
of how God has shown his love to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to take you to a passage of scripture in the small little book of Philippians, a little letter that we've been in that Paul wrote to the early church in Philippi, to to invite you to see another expression, my opinion, a deeper expression of the love of God that I hope will become a principle or an anchor point around which you can reflect on when you use the word to your significant other, in your business relationship, in your family, in your friends, when you say, I love you, that these images and this picture will go through your mind when you say that. And I want to take you, invite you in to see what Paul has to say in an early letter that he wrote to the church in Philippians chapter 2. If you don't own a Bible, I invite you to, to grab a Bible in the pew near you. That's our gift to you. We'd love to give you that Bible if you don't own one. We believe that we can understand who God is through reading that reading the scriptures. So Philippians chapter 2, small little book in the, the right two-thirds of your Bible is Philippians, and uh, we'd love to have you turn there or flip in your phone to that or your tablet, whatever you've got. But Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to be reading from the NIV and, um, and hopefully unpack a few things for us around this big idea that I think can impact everything and impact the way we see our relationships, the way we see God, the way we see our friends, family, etc., uh, etc. Et so we've been here and we're going to jump in. I'm going to read the entire section of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 and then make a few comments about it. I'm going to pause along the way to, to say a few things. So, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, it says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'm going to pause it there. If you've been with me the first couple of weeks of this, you already know, I think, what I'm going to say now. But Paul is writing this to the the early church, who is trying to figure out their earliest expressions of Christianity. And the principles in here are so ridiculously large that some would just call them absolutely naive and completely unattainable. In what world that you know of do people, especially people in power, authority, or position, actually think of others before they think of themselves? In what world do you know of that people from diverse backgrounds with various kinds of pain can actually live in unity and selflessness with one another all the time? In what world does that happen? The ideals in verses 1 to 4 are so ridiculous, I think that Paul realizes that and he says, okay, young church, I know I've thrown out more than you can actually chew. I know that this sounds good in church, but let me bring this down to the reality. This is an impossible standard I'm giving to you. And it's almost like he's searching around in his brain for an image or something that can validate this is actually possible. And here's an image I want you to have, young church. And so I think that he writes the next several verses to reinforce actually the things that I just wrote about in verses 1 to 4. I want to be true for you because they have been true by the very person who came to save you and establish this thing called the church from the very beginning. And that is the incarnation and the mission of Jesus Christ. And so he goes into verse 5, I think, to exemplify these ridiculously high values in verses 1 to 4. And he starts with this crazy phrase in verse 5, your attitude, so we can tell he's speaking to the attitude, that heart, that value, your attitude, the early church, your attitude, Philippians, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, he's done this before, and look what he's done. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, and taking the very nature of a servant, became uh, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the most profound sections of Scripture talking about who Jesus really is. And the last two weeks we've unpacked, first of all, that Jesus is fully God. We talked about that in verse 6. Last week we talked about that he's fully man. The strange mix of both fully God and fully man without diminishing either one in one person. A mind-blowing concept if you really push it out. This morning I want to go into verse 8 and really focus in on verse 8 of this, because verse 8 says this, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. I want to unpack for you what this means and what this does is the way I see it, and allow you to wrestle with it and talk through it yourself. Jesus first of all, came as a man. And the the first reality we talked about last week is the willingness to come down from your position of deity and being God to come down to humanity is a a humbling experience. None of us have ever experienced that, but we can imagine what that might have been like. And what I see in verse 8 is a second humbling. There's a first humbling to become man, to put yourself in our shoes, so to speak. But then in that position of being man, what Jesus easily could have done and what the local powers would have expected any Messiah to do would be to grab power and in his humanity to reach for positions of authority because that's how the world works, isn't it? That people make decisions, power is located with certain key influencers in our world, whether in politics, in business, or otherwise. But instead of doing that and following a traditional path the Messiah might have taken to conquer and rule and reign, Jesus makes another decision subsequent to his decision to become humble in a man, and that is to, to become humble and to choose humility to the point of becoming obedient, as Paul writes, to death. And even to death, he says, on a cross. That it wasn't enough just to become man. It was, let me go down to the furthest and lowest point of humanity that is expressed in that modern world at the time, and let me become humble all the way down to that level. Which is a second decision to make, not just the first one. And so the second one comes from the first, and that to me is incredibly profound. That Jesus did not, he was not sentenced to the cross by the Romans or the Jews. He wasn't just found on the cross. Jesus chose to go to the cross. That to me is a little mind numbing and blowing. It's hard for me sometimes, and I don't know if you ever find yourself in this situation. Uh, Sometimes it's hard for me to do things around the house and not get credit for them. You ever been in that situation? Does it really count if you do the dishes and nobody sees you do them, does it? Does it really count if you take the trash out and no one is there to thank you for doing that? Does that actually count? Because choosing to humble yourself down to that point of like the, the most menial of tasks that I will do, like I'll do it, but I wouldn't mind if someone noticed it. Like I wouldn't mind if I got a little thank you for getting up in the middle of the night with a kid and changing the diaper that's kind of blown out the seams and putting it back together. Like I wouldn't mind that, but I do kind of want you to know that I did that, you know? And here's, here's Jesus taking this incredibly difficult position of saying, I'm going to become obedient to God the Father and taking on flesh, and then what I'm going to do beyond that, just, just to help us know, like, I am for the will of my Father. I'm going to take on obedience to death on a cross. Whoever wants to join a losing team, right? Whoever rallies around 
Someone who says, hey, come on, come on, on on board. Like Our business is about to go bankrupt and you're about to lose your job. Would you come work for us? Like No one wants to, to join a proposition or a movement that isn't going in the right direction. And somehow Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to be human and then I'm going to also humble myself to the point of death on a cross. It's ridiculous. The amount of humility that it takes to do that and the amount of courage it takes to do that. And I would argue that I don't think Jesus really... <laughs> At the end of the day, if he had his druthers, would have preferred to do it this way. But Jesus was unusually committed to the will of his Father. Here, here's what we read about Jesus in John, and then I want to share a couple other things. But he says, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. No matter what, the, the will of God the Father was what drove Jesus. He goes on in John chapter 5. He says, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Like, I may not want to do this, but I'm so laser focused on what God the Father wants that I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Then in John 6, 38, we read this, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That I am here not just to do the things that I might prefer, but I realize that God the Father has some things that he wants me to do, and that even though I may not prefer them, I am going to do them, no matter what they are. In fact, this next passage gives us an insight into the heart of Jesus, unlike, I think, any other. Here we go. Um, and Actually, I'm going to ask, could we kind of refresh the screen so we can center up there, we can get all the words on this. Isn't that amazing? Ta-da. And we're back. Isn't that better? Hopefully that'll work. All right, well, oh! Yeah, close enough. Thank you very much. All right, so here we go. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. A bit of a mouthful. Let me focus your attention for a minute on this top part right here. Listen, read this again and get in the mind here, get in the heart of Jesus. So during the d- days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Let me ask you, if I'm reading that to you, do you think that Jesus wanted to die? Like, can, you, can you imagine the emotional turmoil it would take for a grown man, someone of Jesus' strength, to break down to the point of loud cries and tears, really protesting the will of the Father, really looking at what he has to do, what does love require him to do, and looking at it and saying, I do not want to do this at all. That everything in him, I would argue, pushed against that to the point we read in other passages that he sweated uh, drops of blood in angst about going to the cross. Jesus didn't just come to the cross willingly, quote-unquote. He was willing, but he came with honest objection, honest pushback, deep soul-level pushback to the will of God that said, no, I don't. <laughs> loud cries and tears. When is the last time that could be said of me pushing back on the will of the Father? But here's what Jesus did. With loud cries and tears, he comes to the Father and says, I don't want to do this, but my food is to do the will of the Father, but I'm just going to honestly say, I, I don't want to do this. And then, because of his reverent submission, although he was a son, he learned 
obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. That, that suggests to me that in the decision to suffer, the decision to do the things that he would prefer not to do, it was actually in the suffering that obedience was hammered down. That in the actual moment of deciding, I'm going to do this nonetheless, that obedience is really centralized and really kind of nailed down. It, almost like in the, the, the uh, analogy I gave a minute ago of the, the young couple and the, the husband gets up in the middle of the night and in the quote-unquote suffering of losing some sleep to change a, a messy diaper, that in that quote-unquote suffering, the obedience, that is, what does love require of you to be self-sacrificial? This, this is what it requires. So in the act of doing that which requires something from you, the obedience is nailed down to say, this is what love requires of me, that it's in that act of doing. And this is what we see of Jesus in that act of doing this, obedience teaches me something. And this is what I see when I look at Jesus, and I wonder to myself, as I think of him coming to the cross, that he humbled himself not just in humanity, but humbled and became obedient to death on a cross, and I see the pushback that he had to it, I have to ask myself the question, who or what is on my list of things that are difficult or impossible for me to love. Who or what did I interact with, whether in my family or in my friend circle and business, that I would look and say, these people, <laughs> this is impossible to use that word love in a sentence with these people. This is impossible to say that I can love that person. This is impossible for me to say that I can love doing this when I don't feel at all like doing this. I mean, who's on that list for you? Who's on that list for me? The people that we see in school, the people that we work with, the people who have rejected us, the people who have pushed back on us, the people in our family and otherwise, or those who have hurt us badly, sometimes intentionally, some who have betrayed. And I'd ask the question, is my love scandalous enough to mirror the kind of love that Christ offered to me on the cross? Because what Jesus did when he died on the cross is this love was scandalous. This was, this was a total scandal. There was no one in Philippi, by the way, where this letter was written. There was no one in Philippi when they get this letter who's wearing gold crosses around their neck. There's no Christian bookstores in Philippi that have crosses in them. There's no, no, no early Christians have Bibles with crosses emblazoned on the front. There's no T-shirts with crosses on it or sweatshirts with, with crosses or calendars with crosses on it because the cross is an absolute embarrassment to the person who's hung on it. The cross is the, the lowest point of scorn and scandal. Criminals, the worst in society, are hung on a cross, not the Savior of the world. And so early Christians, they're not worshiping a hero. They're worshiping a traitor. They're worshiping a, a common criminal on the cross. And, and the love is scandalous like that. Now, the cross today is different. We wear it differently. It's a symbol of pride for us as Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, that our God did this. But I'm telling you, in the first century, <clears throat> it upended human wisdom <clears throat> Excuse me. It took the best of what humanity had to offer and said, no, there's a totally other way of doing this. And it was an absolute scandal. And Jesus was willing to go there for me and for you. And so when I think about love, what does love mean? What does it require of me? What does it require of you? Here's what I think. that The cross 
is where we most clearly see the truth about God, that he is love, and that he expresses that love in self-sacrifice. The cross is where we see the clearest picture about the truth of God, that he is love, and that that love is expressed to you and to me in total self-sacrifice, a total abandonment of self to the point of scandal that your interests we put above mine. That your pursuits we put above mine. That our interests, our failures and our struggles in the past are put in a place where God says through Jesus, I love you in that space so much that I'm going to send my son to die on this scandalous cross because I love you. Brings new meaning to John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son. And in the giving, he gave him to the point of going to the worst possible place that we could ever imagine. And so I have a couple questions off of this. One is, do you know this love? Do you know this love? Have you experienced this love personally? One of my favorite verses, I say it I think over and over again here because it continues to impact and change me. That while I was still in my sin, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for me. This is how God demonstrates his love for us. That's what the verse says. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While I was still in my sin, Christ died for me. While I was still in my point of failure. And so I want to ask you, do you know this God? Do you know this love at Christmas time? This God who came in the flesh and sent his son Jesus to die for you. To get to the point on the cross of absolute shame and to invite you to know him. That's my first question for you. Our cards on the table here at GPC, my cards on the table, I want you to know him. That's that's our hope, that's our belief for you. We think your life will be both better now and in the future if you know who Jesus is and pursue a relationship with him. That's our cards on the table. We'd love to have that conversation with you. But secondly, not only do you know him, but do you you, you show it? (laughs) This is the harder question. Because Paul, at the beginning of this section in chapter 2, verse 5, he says this, let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus. An almost impossible ask. One that is so almost otherworldly that I would look at it and be so unsure of how to even proceed because there are people on my list And I don't know about you, but maybe if you're honest, there might be people on your list too who you cannot even imagine loving because of what they've done to you. And Jesus, through loud cries, and tears being drug up unto the will of the Father, that I don't want to love them this much. I don't want to love them to the death. But my food is to do the will of the Father. And so I will choose love. That is scandalous. And that 
is a game changer for how you and I think about love that impacts not only how we see each other in the church, it impacts how you see every relationship that you have, whether in business, in school, at home. This is, to me, the clearest picture of who God is and the love of God coming to you and coming to me. And so I want to ask you at this Christmas time, what does love require you to do? Let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, Paul says. And he invites us to see this self-sacrifice on the cross as nothing less than the picture, the picture of how you and I should orient our love. Not because you deserve it or because you've done enough good things for me, but we love because he first loved us and that love was absolute self sacrifice who do you need to love where do you need to push back because i'm asking you for something big i'm asking you to rethink i'm asking you to consider forgiving I'm asking you to consider laying aside some resentment and bitterness that may have been on your heart for years I'm asking you to consider it if not now when Because I'm very glad that God, through His Son Jesus, did not hold those things against me, but did what love required to the point of absolute self-sacrifice. Let your attitude, Christian, be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking on the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is what Christmas becomes. That is why the incarnation happened. That we can see and be saved from our sin and express that to others. Let me pray with you. This morning. Our God and Heavenly Father, uh, we are in a moment of, um, of a heavy reminder about what love requires of us and what love required of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's Christmas time and we are full of joy and anticipation of the season that is to come, and rightly so. It is a beautiful season. It's a time of great delight and joy and what you have done for us, a time of true celebration. And, and I pray for us this morning that if we're here this morning and don't know your son, Jesus Christ, don't have a relationship with him, that you would move in our hearts to have those conversations and, and talk more about that, to take that next step toward faith and belief or toward pushback or objection, whatever that next step might be. I pray that you would help us to engage that next step as we consider who Jesus actually was and what he actually did. For those in this room and those listening online later who would call themselves believers and Christians, I pray that you would give us the unbelievable courage necessary to have our attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What an unbelievable cost it requires of us to set aside our grievances, to set aside 
our bitterness and our unforgiveness and our resentment and choose to love, even kicking and screaming, to do the will of the Father. And so I pray that you would give us the courage to do what we know we need to do and the grace to do it well. Father, we love you and I pray that you would change us. You would soften each of our hearts and move us in this Christmas season to both seeing and feeling this love of the Father in a profound way. That when we love our spouse and we love our kids and we love our classmates and our coworkers, that we would love like this in self-sacrificial love. We thank you that you came. You sent your son to be born in this manger at this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray.